I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 141. Today in the show, we are joined by and talking deer hunting tactics with one of the very lucky few deer hunters who has ever made the cover of North American Whitetail Magazine. But this gentleman has actually made it three times with three different 200-inch bucks. And that guy is Sam Kalora. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show... We're joined by a very special guest, Sam Kalora, and Sam is someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while now, uh, for for a number of different reasons. You know, first and foremost, he's a well-renowned deer hunter who's killed a lot of really big bucks, including three deer that have scored over 200 inches, and all three of those deer have been on the cover of North American Whitetail. So that's pretty impressive. But what's also particularly interesting about Sam is that his story, one of his stories, intersects with that of our very own Dan Johnson, my trusty co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so some some of you guys might remember this story because we have talked about it a little bit in the past, way in the past, um, about this hunt that Dan had for a giant buck known as Shipwreck. But uh, but today we're going to look back on that hunt again and, and get not only Dan's perspective but also Sam's now. And then also dig into the stories of some of other Sam's other great big buck kills, some of the things he's learned, some of the philosophies and tactics that have led to all the success, the success, and uh, lots and lots more. So, so Dan, are are you ready to talk about shipwreck again? <laughs> Dude, I'll talk about that deer anytime. I I tell you the uh, the one takeaway from chasing a big mature buck like that for so many years is that was the buck really that kind of changed the way I start that I hunt, you know? Um, and it, you know, we can get into a lot of detail about that some other time, but, and I think we already have in some of the past episodes, but it's just, it's a buck that you hunt 
you never kill, but he, he leaves you with something and he, he teaches you something. And that's what I, that was my success. Yeah. You know, I considered that a successful journey as far as hunting that particular buck. Oh yeah, for sure. Just from knowing what I know, it seems like it, it like you said, it changed you in a lot of ways. It, it molded yep. you as a deer hunter. And, yep. um, and now here you are today. Unfortunately, unfortunately, he hangs on someone else's wall who we'll, we'll talk to here in a few minutes. But uh, <laughs> that's how it goes. But uh, but real quick before we do get Sam on, uh, anything new in the world of Dan Johnson? You know, just uh, husband, father stuff, you know, that uh, oh, living dude. that cub- cubicle life. <laughs> Can I tell you that I, I was looking at reviews on iTunes. I don't know if you saw this one. Um, no, I haven't. But someone left us a one-star review. Okay. And they said, if I wanted fathering advice, I'd go somewhere else. <laughs> so I just laughed so hard. <laughs> have I ever tried to give advice on this show? I don't know if you've ever given advice. It might not have been. It might have just been if I want to hear about parenting or fathering or something like that. I can't remember the oh. exact words, but oh. but uh, it gave me a good. I'm chuckle. sorry. I'm sorry to that person that I ruined your entire day and they weren't <laughs> able to take away anything else from this podcast except for the very short amount of time that I bitch and complain <laughs> about my own family. <laughs> can I tell you what though? I can relate to you a little bit more today than I could have in the past because this past Friday and Saturday we babysitted my sister-in-law's four kids. So there was a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a 12-year-old. And that was a handful, man. That was a real handful. So, I believe it. I believe it. So, uh, you got to give kids. them away at the end of the weekend, right? Like, True. You still – they're not yours forever, right? <laughs> not mine forever. Yeah, my, mine are mine forever. True. I guess that's a, that's a, <laughs> that is an important right. difference. Hey, let's not talk about kids, man. I don't want any more one-star reviews, okay? <laughs> Well, do you have anything non-kid related? Um, I went on a seven-hour shed hunt on Sunday. That a boy. What uh, you? What'd you find? Uh, well, knocked on a door, picked up a new piece of property, um, shed hunted it. To shed hunt or, or to hunt hunt? Well, I sh- I first I shed hunted hunted it, but the the guy goes, hey, you know, I, as far as I know, we don't have any people bow hunting on it, so that's kind <laughs> of a plus plus for me. That's awesome. And, uh, but me and my buddy Ryan, we went out there and we walked it, and oh my lord! I, you know when you walk into a piece of property, like when you're scouting this time of year, you're shedding, and you can't. It's hard to look for sheds because you're looking at so many massive rubs mm-hmm. that your head, your head just kind of co- goes up and starts looking at places for tree stands. It was one of those kinds of spots. Yeah, one of those kind of spots. So, um, and it doesn't hurt. It. You know how I always talk about. You know, if you can't get the main piece of property, try to get the property next to it yeah. that it maybe looks less attractive on a map. Uh, that's exactly what I did. And um, the sign in there, I mean, it's nothing but a little finger that pops out of a little crick system. But the neighbors, it's all managed and it's, you know, I don't, I don't know who the owner is, but you can tell from an aerial map they have food plots and shooting houses and stuff like that. So. That's awesome, man. That is good news. Yeah. I heard you uh you went out and got a piece of property too, right? I did. I um what's it? I guess that was last night. Um I knocked on doors last night. Um the past week or so I've been maybe a little longer than that. I've been driving around in the evenings, checking out fields, trying to see where all these deer are feeding now and um kind of 
pinpoint a handful that I want to try to get permission on. So last night I knocked on the doors for three of them. Um, two of the places I had to come back to twice because nobody was there. On one of them, no one was ever there. The second place, uh, they already shed hunt and hunt it, so I couldn't get permission there. But the third spot, I did get permission. So uh, nice. I haven't walked it yet, but probably tomorrow or the next day, I'm going to go check it out. And this is uh, a piece that is very close to my main Michigan uh, spots where you know Holyfield is or, or was or hopefully is. So um, I'm hopeful that uh, he that this could be one of the spots where his sheds could be. So I'm excited to be able to get permission to check that out. It's, it's mostly big crop fields, but there's been a lot of deer feeding in it, and there's some fingers of timber where there could be some deer bedded or you know hanging out in the middle of the night. So there's there's a chance. Yeah, 33% for knocking on doors is pretty good. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Even, you know, shed hunting permission is a lot easier than getting deer hunting permission. Right. But uh, but in Michigan, the door. It's, it's all it's all a win. Yeah, so. Right. Plus your foot's in the door, man. Yeah. You know, I'm a bow hunter. Oh, yeah. Oh, we don't, I don't think we have a bow hunter on our property, which, yeah. you know, Michigan, who knows. But, you know, for me, I saw some tree stands while I was in this in this piece, but you know, they're all on field edges that looked like places for muzzleloader or, you know, other types of stands. So as, uh, when Turkey season arrives, I'm going to go back to the same house and go, you know, basically start that process of letting them know who I am and what I'm about, that I'm not a terrible person. And that, uh, hopefully that all rolls into me creating a relationship with them to uh, get my foot in, you know, to start bow hunting it. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Um, We got to, we got to end this pretty quick here because Sam's expecting us, but really fast. I'm just curious in your neck of the woods, what have you been hearing from people as far as percentage of antlers that have dropped percentage of bucks that have dropped already? Right. So I had a, a good conversation with a buddy of mine who's a diehard too. And he says 40 are dropped, 40% are dropped. But for me, the trail camera pictures that I've seen and that I've gotten from a couple other people, uh, it's less than that. So it's, it's still not what, what I, if I could take it all back, go back in time, I would have saved that seven hour walk for probably this upcoming weekend or the following weekend. Yeah. I've been hearing similar things here and from my buddies in Iowa. I've heard like 60 to 70% are still holding, um, I, my my camera pictures have kind of dried up, like I mentioned. It's uh, they've they've moved on to better food sources. So I don't know what's going on here, but the well, what I can say is all the time I spent driving around the, the past week and a half, I've seen <laughs> hundreds of deer, and only one of those was a buck, or only one of those was holding antlers. Um, yeah. So either you know, a lot of deer around here have shed. Or it's just typical Michigan where there's hundreds of does and one buck in the whole right. darn area. So, uh, right. so I don't know about that. But uh, hopefully there's a few antlers on the ground. We'll uh, we'll see. I'm going to try to walk this weekend. And then the following weekend is the Iowa trip. So That's right. That's right. I'm excited about that. Yeah, buddy. Well, should we wrap this up and, uh, and give Sam a call? Let's get him on the phone. All right. I'm looking forward to this. So we're going to take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear. And then we'll give Sam a call. All right, so today I want to give a big thanks and kudos to our partners at Sitka Gear for doing something that Dan and I have been talking a lot about lately, and that's standing up for public land. And this past week, Sitka Gear sent out an email to their whole email list, which probably includes tens of thousands of people, 
rallying the Sitka tribe to take action in this fight. And I thought their message was just was just spot on. So I thought today I could share a little bit of that email with you because I really, really liked what they had to say. So here we go. Sitka tribe. Public lands are at the heart of everything we do as hunters. Public land and wildlife are uniquely American traditions. All of us, regardless of our personal wealth, enjoy the privilege of accessing public land and water that support healthy populations of fish and wildlife. Access to quality public land that supports these opportunities is vital to our livelihood. As hunters, we live and breathe public land and water and understand the importance of these places more than anyone else. This is land that we all own as Americans. It's land that I cherish with my wife and daughters and land that all of our children and grandchildren should be able to hunt, explore, and enjoy. Unfortunately, as we have all recently seen, there is a very real effort to diminish and sell our public lands. These efforts will compromise family traditions, our ability to put healthy food on our dinner tables, and the lifestyle that defines us. This public land transfer movement seeks to transfer federal public lands to the states under the promise of greater public control. The reality is, the public already owns these lands, and transferring them to the state would only increase the likelihood of future privatization. Too many sections of public lands have already been privatized, resulting in little or no access at all. As hunters, we do not want to give up another acre. Under direct pressure from hunters of all stripes, H.R. 621, which would have sold over 3 million acres of public land, was finally withdrawn by Representative Jason Chavitz. This was a positive victory, but there are other efforts that threaten our public lands. Now, the email goes on to explain three specific issues. H.R. 622, which is another one proposed by Chavitz, which tries to remove the BLM and Forest Service law enforcement functions. Horrible idea. Oregon House Bill 2365, which will empower a task force a task force to research the benefits of transferring federal public lands, and HJ Resolution 44, which will reverse improvements made to the Bureau of Land Management planning process. These are three specific issues they mention here, and now I'll continue reading that email. They say, these are only a number of the issues that are a threat to public land access. We can and must take action. We urge you to call your representatives and tell them you oppose H.R. 622 and H.B. 2365 and support keeping public lands in public hands. These are issues that transcend politics and should unite us as sportsmen, women, and children. The diversity of the hunting community is our strength. Politics do not discriminate in the field. We all share in the tradition of public hunting as equals. Additionally, we urge you to join us in supporting the efforts of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and our other conservation partners who are driving the public lands agenda. Become a member and support organizations that are making a difference. United with these conservation champions, we can send a strong message to legislators that the hunting community will not allow the sale of our legacy. Public lands are vital to our lifestyle and the future of hunting. Now that is an awesome message right there. That's the end of the email, and it's one that I'm so proud to see come from one of our great partners at Sitka Gear. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka, I'd highly encourage you to head over to sitkagear.com. Check it out. And now, let's get back to business and get Sam on the show. All right, with us now on the line is Sam Kalora. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, we, we appreciate you joining us, and... We've actually talked about you a decent bit over the past couple of years because of your relationship with Dan, but uh, but for a long time I wanted to be able to bring you on here and, and just talk to you ourselves. So that said, though, for those in the audience who, who aren't familiar with you, can you just give us a little background into who you are, how you got here, kind of your background in hunting and, and your business related to deer? Uh, sure. I've uh, been hunting all my life. Uh, 
30 years ago this spring, I started raising white-tailed deer, and <laughs> I don't. I had them what, about a year and a half, and and we started collecting urine, and we we started a company called Mrs. Dopey's Bucklure, and we've been collecting urine and selling premier quality lures ever since. And and you're also running a sporting goods store there too, right? Is that is that accurate still? Yeah, we've got a little archery shop, a little archery and hunting shop that it goes along with that. It's kind of a sideline to the to the buck lure, but but it's uh it's a neat little business. Yeah, I bet. So what about hunting? How'd you get into chasing deer and now chasing some of these world class deer? You know, my uncle gave me a set of, of shed antlers when I was eight years old. And I've always said that he was the one that, that started this curse because I I was antler crazy ever since. I I, I love deer. I love antlers. Uh, just everything about them. It's, it's, it's been quite a, quite a run. <laughs> yeah. I think me and Dan can relate. A lot of us can relate. When did you, so do you start, you started deer hunting at a young age or did you, did you get serious yeah. about it later on or how'd that happen? You know, we really, when, when I was young, we really didn't have any deer in this area. Uh, I can remember seeing the first, the first three deer I saw, I was probably 12 years old and a buddy of mine's mom was taking us to a, to a farm pond to go fishing. And we went back to town and told everybody we everybody we knew that we saw deer. I mean, that was a really really big deal back then. Uh, as as I got older and the deer started to you know to prosper and do well and and propagate, we you know, we we started hunting and and, and <laughs> the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> what year was that, Sam? When when you were you know, when, when deer st- finally started to, I guess, start making a presence in Iowa. I was probably eighth grade to freshman in high school. So, uh, 63, 64, 65, right in there is when we really started seeing deer. Okay. And then, and then I'm curious now that you mentioned that Dan, now I'm curious when, or what was like the quality of the deer herd like back then? I mean, right out the gate, when you started seeing a lot of deer, was it all of a sudden in lots of these big mature deer, or did that not start happening until later in the seventies or eighties, or when did we start seeing the Iowa that we know now? You know, they it wasn't that far into it that that uh, there was some really nice deer shot and seen. Uh, we pretty much have everything here we need as as far as you know to produce really good deer and it's just a matter of getting enough deer out there to get some age on them to to really you know show the you know show the size of the deer yeah what are those things that you that you're referring to that you think you know help Iowa produce the quality deer they do what are those factors well, I, I think a big part of it is is we don't gun hunt during the rut. I, I think that's a huge part of it because that that allows some animals to get some age on them. Uh, we have a, a good amount of cover, but we have tremendous agriculture. Uh, mineral content is is really good. 
there's a lot of calcium and you know just all all of the above uh and the genetics are good i mean it's just every, everything we have going here in iowa for for growing big deer is it's a win-win yeah it's, it sure seems like it from everything dan tells me about the good times he has out there <laughs> you guys have got a good situation so sam there's a lot I want to cover in our conversation here because you've obviously had a lot of interesting experiences hunting and killing deer out there. Um, but, but one hunt and one story in particular is kind of where I wanted to start because it's, it's this interesting intersection between your hunting past and my buddy Dan's here. Um, and it's kind of a cool opportunity that we have you both here to talk about this story for this deer known as shipwreck. So, so I thought we could maybe start there and, Maybe Dan, um, and you you guys could tell me how you want to tell this story. Maybe you guys know understand the timeline better than I do. But but I think the story starts with you, Dan. And maybe do you want to set the stage here and tell us maybe uh, an abbreviated version of your side of the story, and then we can jump over to Sam and hear the parallel side on on your end. Yeah, sure. I mean, oh, it's been a while now, but we used to hunt in an area where our properties were close to, to one another. And, it, and my first year in this property, I saw a lot of good deer coming out of a, a portion of this property that was kind of between the two. And, uh, one day a giant whitetail just popped out and, uh, I mean, it was shipwreck and that's kind of the abbreviated version of a five year story that <laughs> I can, I had from with this buck you know what i mean that's all you're gonna tell us is that this big buck popped out (laughs) (laughs) well i mean (laughs) i mean (laughs) i mean it you know like like i said in the in the intro it was uh it was my very first encounter with a buck of that caliber and it it changed the way i hunt to this day being able to experience this buck learning from his movement learning you know the times of year he moved the wind direction and just you know basically observing a specimen like him kind of gave me an education and you know it he was you know I, I I believe he was probably working both properties for you know, but probably closer to where I was hunting. And then, you know, later on, on his life, he probably started moving down to where, where Sam was hunting. And that's where the intersection kind of takes place. Yeah. Now it's been probably two years or so since we actually went through the detailed story of like all your encounters with him. Can you walk us through just, I mean, for, cause there's probably a lot of listeners that are new that miss that, you know, episode number 30 or whatever it was that we went through, you know, the timeline a little bit. Can you just give us a little bit better idea, you know, cause this was how many years does this go over the course of, and I mean, weren't there encounters for three or four years or something where you had close calls or you spent your whole season wrote, you know, focused on him? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, man, Sam, what year did you end up harvesting him? No, it would have been, uh, 2011. Was it 12, 12? Cause it was five. Well, no, no, it was 11, 11. Was okay. Five years ago, five years ago, last fall. Okay. Yeah. So I think my very first encounter with him was in 2007 and, um, you know, he, he had a very small core area. I feel as far as, 
it, he, I know he would make trips outside of that every once in a while, but for the most part, he lived in a very small core area and his, his movement was very limited to a very small portion of, of the, the farm that he lived on. So you saw him in 2007. Yep. Uh, Saw him in 2007. Didn't see him in 2008. Saw him in 2009. I shot him but didn't kill him in 2010. And then Sam harvested him in 2011. 2009, actually, I saw him multiple times. Gotcha. And it it was 2010. Well, when did the obsession begin? Like, when did you start, like, completely focusing on this deer? Was that 2009 or 2010? it would have been 2009 because I had, um, that's when I started running trail cameras. That's when I started having all the encounters with him. That's when I started losing sleep over this buck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then Sam, <laughs> when did, when did shipwreck enter your life? When did you first see him? First time I saw him. Yeah. It was the day I killed him. Was it really? Yeah. You see that? You see that? <laughs> <laughs> so, let, so me, let me back up a little bit. Let me back up just a little bit. I have a set of sheds from that deer when he was seven and a half years old. I killed him at nine and a half years old. So we knew he was living there. We knew he was, you know, on the property. I had never seen that deer as an adult deer. Uh, at the time, I really didn't run any trail cameras. I just hunt. Uh, anyway, he, 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 I, I, I went in there that night with a, with a doe and asterisk drag rag and did it. I've kind of got a prescribed way that I use it. Anyway, he was, he was the fourth buck to come in that night on that drag rag. Wow. So, so what day of the, of the month or year was this? And then can you tell us what you, how you specifically use that rag, that drag rag? Yeah, it was it was the 18th of October, and it was the first time I had a favorable wind. What I thought thought was favorable for where I wanted to wanted to, and I and I actually went in there looking for that deer. Uh, but it was the first day of the season that I had a favorable wind. Uh, temperatures dropped and it got cool and it's kind of drizzly and damp and dank and. And it was it was just perfect, and the wind was out of the right direction, and the, and I went in and pulled the drag rag, and and here he came. What did, did you, so when you saw him walking in, did you know who it was right away? It was that buck from the sheds. <laughs> I I will I will never ever forget as long as I live. I I watched and Dan, remember how his his front or the end of his main beams tipped up? Yep, yep. They hooked hooked clear up. I saw that hook coming from behind the tree, and I went. I, and I thought to myself, well, there's a little shipwreck. I probably ought to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. <laughs> and I will never forget it. I can't, I can imagine. Now, did, did you know, other than the sheds, did you know that other people like Dan or some of the other hunters around there had been seeing him? Um, Cause I remember there's a, there's a, I think there's a handful of you guys that, that had been seeing this deer. Is that, is that right? Yeah, this, this is a win-win deal. You know, Dan and I are hunting properties you know adjacent to each other and nice and close and and when he shot him in 2010 he came and asked my permission to walk across the property if he could trail him through and i told him if he had blood going through to grab his bow and go kill him anyway he came back and told me later that he didn't find him and he didn't go in the property because there was no blood going in 
and which which I appreciated because he wasn't in there just pushing mine out. Anyway, uh, this 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 is a win win deal because you got two guys hunting a great big deer on you know properties right beside each other, and we're still friends. Yeah, yep. That's that's, that's a big big deal. Yeah, it is yep. sad how often that kind of thing ruins relationships when people let a big deer get in the way and, and cloud things like that. It happens way too often, I think. Yeah, the thing that was kind of, was was really I didn't I didn't quite get it at first when when Dan came back and told me he didn't find him. He stood there for the longest time and looked at me, and I went, "Oh, Dan, I said, if I find him later, I'll give him to you. He's yours. You shot." <laughs> <laughs> but but he was giving me this look. It's like I'm, I'm you know what's going on here. And I, I finally figured out. It's like. Yeah, he's yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. that was I was probably in some form of shock because it was the biggest oh, buck I I ever had an encounter with. Yeah, you were you were in bad shape, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you were tore up. So so you said that you're going into that spot on that night for shipwreck. Um, what what made that spot so good, and why did you think that'd be a spot you could kill shipwreck on that day? We we have a little bluff over the river and it's it's kind of the the funnel of the river uh bluff for for miles either direction and if if you go in there right and and hit the ridge line a lot of times the bucks will come in there and scent check the whole thing and and i i work that ridge line but but there's a bedding area that's been there and, and like i say we've hunted this area for for 30 years and there's a an area in there that was a bedding area that was really good, thick cedars and brushy. And they, 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 they would go in and bed there always. Anyway, it, it got to where it canopied, the trees canopied over it and it was starting to thin out. And a couple of years previous to this, I went in there and hinge cut, uh, oh, probably a quarter of an acre and where that old bedding area was. And I hinge cut a bunch of trees and it just got thick and nasty. And, and I worked around that across the ridge line and around that bedding area with that drag rag and got into where my wind was perfect. And, and that's where he, that's where he came in and I killed him. Wow. When, when you shot him, yeah, tell me. I guess tell me. Tell me what happened after that. Was it an easy recovery? Was it a tough one? How did all that go? And then I'm kind of curious about how then you told Dan or how Dan found out how that whole thing went down. Yeah, the recovery was was really easy. I <laughs> I shot him. Uh, I, actually, I, first thing I do when I get in a tree stand always is to check my equipment and make sure everything's good. And the second thing I do, and I don't care if I've been in the tree a thousand times or once, I always try to check the area I'm in to look for the worst possible shot. Well, in this, this case, I had a, a blowdown that the top of a tree had blown down, and, and I didn't know it since the last time I was in that stand. Anyway, there was I was looking for a hole to shoot through, and, and I found it. I uh, found actually a couple holes and and thought, well, if a deer came through the backside of that, you could probably slide an arrow through there. And sure enough, he came in on the rag, and then he turned and came on the backside of that blowdown. 
And I I can remember thinking he's going to step right into that. And and when I was thinking, hold the you know the boat went off and the arrow went through him, stuck in the ground. And he turned to my left, jumped a little ravine, and then started uphill. I mean he was he was pouring the coals to it. And I I roared at him. I I did a buck grunt roar. Uh, really, really loud. And I, anyway, when I did, he—I think he thought another buck had stuck him, because he—he—he he, he came to a stop like a cutting horse. I mean, he just slid to a stop, and he—and he turned and he looked right at me, and he tipped over. Wow, is that something you've done in the past to stop a buck when he's running off, and, and have seen that work more often? Yeah, I've done it, done it a lot of times. They will—they—they uh, <laughs> they react well to it. Wow, that is really interesting. I've never heard that mentioned to do with whitetails. I, I've seen people do that and heard people do that with elk. You know, you start cow calling after shooting an elk, and lots of times they'll stop. But I never heard about that for whitetails. That's a, that's a really interesting idea. I, I was with a guy in New Mexico, and I had shot a bull elk with a bow, and it was running towards a ravine. And if it, it would have dropped in there, we'd have to take a skill of in there and ate it. Because you'd have never got a pack out. <laughs> anyway, he... He he did that. He he cow called and it it stopped right at the edge of that that drop off. Turned around and looked at us and dropped over. We when we pulled a pickup up to him and loaded him. Wow, that's crazy. That happened with shipwreck. That's that's really interesting. So he tips over. Um, did you did what was your? I'm sure you were. I, I'm gonna rewind here a second. I've got ten thousand questions in my mind. I want to ask. I'm first curious when you saw that buck come in and you're getting ready to shoot him. Did you, do you still get some kind of buck fever? Do you still get nervous when a 200 inch buck comes in front of you? Or have you seen so many big deer and killed so many big deer? It's just going about your business. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm solid as rock and, and I, I don't have any problem at all until I release the arrow. I mean, I, I'm, I'm solid. There's, there's no problem. There's no jitters. There's nothing. But when I release that arrow, I just turn to garbage <laughs> and I still, that- and I still get that, that adrenaline dump that, that it's just, it, it's so unbelievable. Is that something, Sam, that you've had to learn how to, um, deal with over your course of hunting, or is that something that, you know, basically comes with, Hey, I've been there before. I've been around big deer. Uh, you're experienced in that in that type of scenario, or is it something that you've always been rock solid from day one? No, I I, I wouldn't say I've always been that way. Um, I always keep it together, but I, I used to get more more fluttered, you know, bef- right. before I dropped the arrow. But yeah, I, it's yeah, I'm I'm good. Until the you know, until I pull the pull the trigger on the release, and then it's just oh, my, my son and I. My, my son and I sat in a blind together this fall. We had two deer that were on our hit list, and I killed the first one uh, late or yeah, late muzzleloader. It was the first day of late muzzleloader season. I just could not get together with him with a bow. Anyway, I killed the first one, and, and a week later, I'm sitting in a blind with my son. And I've got a bow because I haven't filled my bow tag yet. And he's got a gun, and, he, and he's not wanting me there because if the big deer comes in, 
he wants to shoot him, right? So <laughs> he, he, t- he tells me, this isn't right. You've already shot a deer. And I said, well, if he comes in close enough, if, if he comes in close enough for a bow, I'm going to shoot him. <laughs> and anyway, we talked about it, and, and, and I was getting sick. I, had, I, I was getting the flu, and I was achy all over. And I didn't want to sit in a tree stand because it was like 20 degrees and a 25 mile an hour wind. And so I went in the blind with him and I said, what are the odds of us seeing that? We Neither one of us have gotten this buck within range all season. What are the odds he's going to come in here tonight with both of us here? Well, he did. <laughs> and he turned and, and came almost, I mean, he was turned coming right square in front of the blind. And I had the bow in the window hooked up and, and I was ready to shoot. And he veered off and went away. And anyway, I stepped out of the window and I said, get on him. And anyway, my son ends up shooting this deer. We watch him run into the timber. Well, I went to lay my bow down in the blind and, and I went, I turned around and looked at him and said, okay, so you shot this deer. How come I'm shaking? <laughs> <laughs> and I was shaking like a leaf. <laughs> but I, I guess being in the window and having the bow ready and, and, and yeah, but, it, but I never did it till after, after he shot. So it was kind of fun. It's good to know that feeling doesn't go away. That's what it's all about. No, right there. It is still exciting. Yeah. So after you shot shipwreck, um, when did, when did Dan find out? How did, how did Dan find out what, what was all that about? Uh, Dan at the time was, was with white knuckle productions. And he and he and Todd were were doing their videos together. Anyway, I knew that they had a series of videos. In fact, I'd watched I'd watched the videos of this big buck, and I knew that they you know had had an ongoing you know relationship with this deer, and and Dan was obsessed with him. And anyway, so I called Todd and told him that that I had good news and bad news. I said the the good news is 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 uh, I said, the bad news is shipwreck got shot tonight. And I said, the good news is I did it and he's dead. <laughs> I've got him. And anyway, I said, I know you guys need closure for your video. So if you want to bring your cameras tomorrow, um, you can, you can finish that off. And, and he called Dan right away. And then Dan called me back right away and told me, congratulations. I, and, and you know what? I, I liked Dan before that. And I, I liked him even better afterwards because he he didn't get pouty about it. He didn't he didn't uh, uh, didn't have a fit or you cheated or you did something wrong. It was it was <laughs> genuine congratulations and and he was happy, very very happy for me. That's yeah. that's a big deal. That's awesome for sure. What do you remember about that moment, Dan? Oh, it was. It's, it's hard because when you're when you obsess over something like that for so long and, you know, deer hunting is our passion and you come across a deer like that, that's, you know, a once in a lifetime for, for me, it has been so far. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity at a giant, a true 200 incher. And um, and then when that story comes to an end, you're you're happy that it's in a way you're happy that it's over. But at the, at the same time, you're 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 sad because that that deer has brought you so much enjoyment not just from hunting it but you know sitting down in front of uh, a computer looking at maps you know trying to figure out your next next move playing basically chess with it yeah no i can definitely relate to that i I... were you gonna say something else yeah and i think i think what was it saying am i 
that weekend that, cause I was, I was at work that all, whole week. So then that weekend or the following week, I, I came down to the shop and, uh, he let me, he, he let me take a look at it and put my hands on, on shipwrecks rack. And it was to this day, one of the, still one of the coolest encounter, like experiences with just, was just letting or Sam letting me hold those antlers and look at them and touch them for, you know, because that buck had, had meant so much to me, even though I, I wasn't the guy who harvested it. You know what I mean? So that was, a, that was a win for me. Yeah. But what I, you, we talked earlier about the fact that you said you learned a lot from this deer. Did you learn anything or did you change at all? How you, I don't know, you, like you obsessed over this deer. You, we've all done it. We've obsessed over deer. And then in this case, somebody else killed it. Did this change at all how you view your chase for a specific buck? Did it help you, you know, not feel as bad? Or I don't know. What changed for you in that regard? You know, just, and maybe, and, and maybe Sam could talk to this a little bit about how he has approached his tenure as a bow hunter. But I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, me just being too aggressive right off of the bat when the, when the hunting season started. Yeah. So just from a hunting perspective that you, you got too aggressive and and that was a big thing that makes sense. And I, I, I can see how that might be something you would do when you're hunting a 200 inch buck. <laughs> so, right. So, so Sam, what about for you? Was there anything that you learned after this hunt or through this experience hunting shipwreck and finding sheds and everything? Did you come out on the other end having learned anything different? I, I don't know that he taught me anything. Cause like I said, I only had one encounter with this deer. I, I didn't even find the sheds. A buddy of mine was here that I bear hunt with from Canada and he was here turkey hunting and he found the sheds. So I really only had one encounter with, with shipwreck. Uh, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I have a, a, an incredible respect for these animals and their abilities. And, and, you know, they beat us more than we beat them. That's for sure. But I, I can't really say that, you know, shipwreck taught me anything. Uh, I guess the, the, the biggest thing I got, of course, you know, killing a great big deer is always, always incredible, but, I think the biggest thing I got out of it was, you know, there's, there's still a lot of really good people out there that are in our hunting, hunting and, and, you know, Dan's one of them. He's, he's, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's a tribute to our sport. Well, I think that's pretty accurate. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Sam, what about some other deer? Has there been any other particular deer you can remember over the course of your past hunting seasons that you can look back on and say that experience taught me something or that changed how I hunted, you know, shipwreck was that deer for Dan. Can you remember any kind of experience like that for you? Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and it's probably not the deer I've harvested. It's probably more of the ones that have beat me, which, which is a lot of, them. uh, yeah, there's, there's deer that that I zigged when I should have zagged. Uh, I pulled a drag rag in one time and I made a sharp 90 degree turn, and the deer was falling in, had his nose to the ground. He was dog paddling. I mean, just he was on it coming in, and and I had turned really sharp, 
and he went right off of it. And and I could not get him in. And, and I, I swear to God, it was the biggest deer I've ever hunted. And I didn't get him. He beat me. And I beat myself on that one. Wow. You know, we have, we don't talk about using drag rags very often. I know, I know you mentioned how you used it in the shipwreck case, but can you just walk us through high level what the right way in general is to use one of those and what your specific technique usually, you know, in general entails? Yeah, the, the first thing is when, when I do a drag rag, I always use the Dillon Astros. And I, and I think that's something that one of the things from raising deer and living with them, uh, we figured out that if we use doe and asterisk before the does in the wild come into heat, uh, just just like shipwreck, I, I killed him the 18th of October, so you know we weren't even close to the, to being in our rut. But the bucks are are capable of breeding as soon as they come out of velvet. Uh, they you know they, they they actually prior to that are are impotent. They they have to get their testosterone level up, and that's what shuts the the blood supply off to the antler and, and allows them to, to become, you know, viable and, and able to breed. So you go out there with, with doe and estrus early, uh, prior to the rut. And what I do with a drag rag is, is I will start, first of all, you know, I, I do tons of preparation for my, for my scent and scent control and boots. You know, the boots don't go to the grocery store, or the gas station, they, they're in a tote. They get you know, I, and I get dressed at the edge of the timber when I'm going in, and the boots come out of the tote, and I put them on. I, I do cheat a little bit. I, I wear those boots in my deer lot when I'm you know when I'm doing chores and that type of thing because I've got lots of deer scent there. Uh, the other thing that that I well with the drag rag itself, I'll start out pulling the rag. Uh, basically, it's just a, a, a string with a with a cotton rag on it and i will apply a little bit of scent to that rag on the way in and i will continue to add to it all the way into the stand and by doing that i'm not trying to get somebody to you know slosh a gallon of lure out there to to sell a whole bunch of it we start with a few drops continue to add a few drops all the way in and what we're doing is is showing which direction that deer is traveling so the scent gets stronger all the way into your stand location. Okay, as you make your final approach to your stand, it doesn't matter if you come in with the wind or side wind or how you do it, but your final approach to the stand needs to be with the wind to your back walking into the stand. And in doing that, when you're sitting in the tree, you're not up there blowing back to the deer. The deer scent would be blowing to you. Uh, final approach to the stand, I always I always try to make a little bit of a hook and not real sharp, but just a gentle little hook. So and then put the rag like in a little sapling or something. And I want him to turn and get his attention away from me, not look I don't want him to come in and, and park, stick his nose on the rag and look at me in the stand. I want him to come around and to be quartered away and paying attention to that rag the other direction. And I have done this so many times. I mean, just over and over and over and had, had deer do exactly what they're supposed to do. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that you're usually going to start using this type of tactic in the pre-rut. How far 
how far past that will you continue doing it? Do you do it all the way through November, through November, or when do you stop using a drag like that? You know, I, I'll use it all season, all the, all the way through. Uh, and you think about it, you, you got pre-rut, you got bucks out looking for does, and they're traveling and they're looking. And I, I, I use it the first of October when, when we open here. Uh, <clears throat> bucks are capable breeding like the first of September. So the first of October when you're out there doing that, they're not going to come in like they do November 1. They're not going to come in crazy, but a lot of times they'll walk in and do exactly what you want them to do without going blowing through. And, you know, if you if you're hunting the rut when everything's you know ramming jamming and everybody's you know going 100 mile an hour, it's much harder to kill a deer. If you got him walking in and and going over and sticking his nose on a drag rag, it's it's a heck of a lot easier to put a hole in it. <laughs> Very true. Well, that being the case, what would your favorite? What's your favorite week of the year to be out hunting whitetails? Last week in October. And why? <laughs> I don't have any competition. The the does aren't out there stealing them from me. The boat, the bucks are all ranging. Uh, and and I'm saying the last week in October to the first week in November. Uh, the bucks are all ranging. They're all out there looking for a girlfriend and it's so much easier to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, than it is if he's, if <laughs> I did a, did a seminar down in Atlanta one time and I had, I had this guy in the back and we got to the question and answer thing. And, and anyway, the guy raises his hand and he, and he, his question was, when the bucks are controlling the rut, what happens? And I stopped him right there. And I said, you know, bucks are not controlling anything. I said, hang on a minute. I said, how many married men would get in here? And then, you know, 75% of the guys didn't raise their hand. I said, how many of you folks control, I mean, how many of you guys control the rut at your house? <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah, right. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, so, you know, if, if you don't have any competition from the ladies, you can, you can be the only game in town and it works. I mean, it's just unbelievable how it works. And you know, when the, when the girls start stealing them, I relate it to hunting turkeys. When you're out there on that green field and there's a, there's, you know, a gobbler out there with six hens, it's real tough to call him over to the edge of the brush and kill him. He's not going to leave her or them. And it's the same thing with a buck. If he's with a hot doe, real tough to get him get him to come see you. Yeah. What other uh, speaking of drag rags and stuff, what other scents do you use, and what other applications other than the drag rag approach, or or is that the only way you're using your scents? No, I I will I I've got a I think Dan may have used some of them. We've got a it's fairly new. Uh, we call it a landmine. And we have a, a bottle of lure that you actually bury the entire bottle in the ground. And and you once you've got it buried, then there's a ring on the bottle. You pull the ring, and there's a wick inside the bottle, and you pull that wick up out of the ground. And it permeates the scent, and, and you do it in a scrape area. 
and it is unbelievable <laughs> the action we get on those things. Wow, you're using that yeah, for the I camera used, locations? I used one. I used one this year, and uh, I didn't take your advice, Sam, and pack it down hard <laughs> enough. And they will, they will, they'll, they'll dig it out of the ground with their hooves. Yep, they'll steal it. We've we had a, yep. we've had a whole bunch of guys that that had the last picture they got of their landmine. The deer had the wick in his mouth, walking away with the bottle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what we started doing is boring a hole in the ground with a cordless drill. And then we press that bottle down into that hole. And that keeps them from digging it out or, or pulling it out with their mouth. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good uh, type of situation for great trail camera pictures. I've used a lot of mock scrapes and things like that with my camera for photos, but I've never really settled on a, a particular scent or lure that I've been able to use that has worked for me best. I've still kind of just stuck with natural Mark Kenyon human urine, and uh, I've been meaning to try some different things, so maybe I'll need to try something like that. Both both of the bucks that, that my son and I killed this year were – we're, we had had a lot of trail pictures of them over the landmines. Hmm. Do you do you use other things during the rut or pre-rut time period that we've been talking about, like uh, aggressive calling techniques or anything? Um, oh yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, I I love to rattle. It's what a thrill when they come you know come in to set of horns being smashed and and you know. I rattle, I grunt, I, I, I do everything that, that a deer does. You know, the, the other thing that, that I can tell you is I've lived with deer for 30 years, and I've, I've spent my lifetime studying and trying to understand what they're doing, when they're doing it. Uh, body language is huge, knowing what the, you know, knowing by their action what they're going to do next. And they're not always knowing, but, but having a real good idea what's going to happen with them next and, and being able to call them into your stand location. And, and, you know, it, you know, it just, all of those things together have, you know, have, have really helped me to, to harvest bigger deer. Yeah. I imagine. Can you give us some examples of some of that body language that you look for and, and how you react to what you see them doing? Yeah, I, I've done seminars all all over the United States with you know, about whitetail body language, and it it still fascinates me. There's there's a couple instances I can tell you that that you know, and and one was with with uh, uh, a real well known celebrity, and he's standing on the front porch of the of my shop. We've got deer right there by the shop, and this deer started walking up the hill, and I looked at him. I said, "That deer's going to lay down." And he goes, how do you know? And I said, I don't know, but watch him. He says, well, what makes you think that? I said, I don't know. I said, just watch him. And he walked up, you know, three quarters of the way up the hill. He stopped, walked in a circle, made another half circle and laid down. Anyway, the guy, the guy was standing there, he goes, I don't believe it. Anyway, he goes, I, I need to spend more time here. <laughs> wow. They, they tell it, they telegraph. I don't know if, if, you know, Iowa's a huge wrestling state. Every kid in Iowa's wrestled sometime or another. And one of the things that your coaches always teach is your your opponent will telegraph. And he will he will tell you if you if you're if 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 you watch close and you understand it, he will tell you when he's gonna move. And there there'll be just just something there. You know, there's there's a look, there's a nod, there's a you know, there's there's a dip, there's something there 
And before he moves, he'll telegraph that move to you. And you know it's coming and you can react. Okay, deer do the same thing. They telegraph through their eyes, their their ears, their hair. I mean, when, you know, when that hair, we've all seen their hair stand on end when you know, there's two of them bristled up looking at each other. Uh, tarsal glands will actually flower and open up when they're nervous or if they're upset, uh, either one. If they're scared, nervous, upset, mad, that, that tarsal gland will open up and flower. And you, you know what it looks like on a dead deer where it's laid down and it's almost like it's combed and groomed? Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll honestly open, clear up the uh, preorbital gland on the, on the deer's, below the deer's eye will flower it'll open up if they're if they're scared or nervous uh those things tell you that you know this deer's probably going to jump the string on me if if i shoot because he's already on high alert you know if the deer's standing there and his ears are about you know halfway down sitting there and i call him being in neutral he's just standing there completely neutral nothing going on do to do to do and you know just you know zip an arrow right through it if if you see his tail uh, half mast and and kind of quiver and he's probably urinating, uh, what a great time to shoot! He's not thinking about nothing else. Uh, buddy and I, buddy and I were on our way home from a moose hunt up in Saskatchewan, and this deer was 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 stopped and he was hunched. Down, and it was a, it was a buck, and his back end was lowered and and. Anyway, we're, we're driving along down the highway, and he goes, hey, look, that deer's taking a poop. And I said, no, Smitty, it's not. I said, a deer will, will poop on the, on the move, on the fly, and he doesn't have to stop and concentrate on it. I said, he, he's, he's taking a leak. And he goes, well, I guess you'd know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's just, there, there's just a million things they can tell you by their posture and, and hair and, 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 and all the things they do. Yeah. Hey, Sam, what about barometric pressure and moon phases and you know a lot of these hunters out there they get caught up in uh you know trying to fork you know predict deer movement based off of those two and including weather is any of can any of those be connected or is it just kind of hogwash no i think i think there's a lot of merit to all of it i don't understand it well enough to to tell you that that you know, this is how to do it, but I, I, I guarantee it has merit. Uh, here again, I kind of cheat. I look out the window and if my deer are all up on their feet, I know it's a good time to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a a pretty good barometer. I have guys call me at the shop and they go, what are your deer doing? I said, oh, they're all bedded down. Okay. I'm going to wait a couple hours. (laughs) What, what? But it, it really, it really is the same. If my deer, if, if all of my deer in my pasture, if every one of them's bedded, I guarantee it's the same thing in the wild. Huh. It's just, and and I, I should probably pay more attention to barometric pressure and moon phase and and see what what that has to do with what I'm what I'm seeing. Are there any other things that you've learned from watching the deer that you've raised that you've been able to apply in your actual hunting all the above uh everything that we've talked about just you know when you when you know that a deer's you know when he locks up and he's standing still or or he'll he'll and and here again he'll telegraph that he's gonna move 
uh, it gives you a great idea when to draw the bow, when 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 not to draw the bow. Uh, it's all every every little detail he gives you can help you some way or or the other uh, kill the deer. And and even even calling, you know, if you're if you got him in that last few steps and and you can watch him know know what his demeanor is, uh, it can it can help you either either you know know when to dummy up or, or when to be aggressive and, and do some calling. Yeah. Speaking of calling, can you, can you, um, Oh, dive in a little bit deeper into your specifics of, you know, what, what types of calls and grunt or rattling sequences you use when you use them? Um, you know, what in particular you actually do? I don't know if you heard that or not. I, I got a bull elk that just bugled. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sitting outside my home. He's entertaining my neighbors. <laughs> wow. Uh, as, as far as calling, uh, I don't know. I I I do a lot of lot of different calls, and and a lot of times I just mimic what I hear my does do with with their babies and around the box, uh, as as well as grunting. Uh, you know, and like I told you earlier with with shipwreck, I. You know, I, I made a very, very aggressive, you know, growling loud, you know, basically the, you know, the roar. And, and I've, I've only heard that a couple times in the wild, but it sure locked him up. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Moving back in time a little bit, you killed, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you killed your first 200 inch deer in 1996. Is that right? That's correct. Could you tell us the story of that hunt and that deer? That deer was, <clears throat> I had passed a deer a hundred yards from where I killed him the year before. That was a great big lanky 10, ten pointer. Looked like a three year old. And I, I don't, and I don't know that it was the same deer, but I always, I always would like to think that it was, but, uh, I went out the 11th of October and they again pulled a drag rag out into the sand location and had some does that I busted on the way in and I was hoping that didn't screw anything up and had squirrels playing in front of me and across the CRP field this deer came in from and, it, and, he, and he didn't come down the drag rag trail but he came from downwind of the drag rag and walked right to it so he'd come all the way across the crp field with his nose in the air walked right to that drag rag and and stopped uh i tried to get a shot on him and and i drew the bow and i and and here again i was i was solid as rock when i did it i and i kept thinking boy that's a that's a really good buck i you know i need to kill him well i drew the bow and couldn't get through the brush, couldn't get the shot, and I let it down. And when I when I let the bow down, it was just I don't know. It must have simulated taking the shot because I turned to junk. <laughs> uh, my knee started shaking, and and I was you know started to chatter, and and I can remember telling myself, you know, this is a really good buck. Don't screw this up. And I talked myself out of it. It's like you know, get your act together, straighten up. When he comes by you, you got to be ready. You got to be able to kill him, and I did. I got squared away. I got got my you know got my 
nerves under control. And I don't know, three, four minutes later, he, he turned and came from right to left and, and walked by me at about 30 yards and I slipped an arrow in him. Hmm. Wow. What was and then that? I turned to garbage. <laughs> <laughs> what was that stand set up like? What made that the right spot to be? Uh, kind of, well, it didn't end up quite like I thought it was, but it, it was, uh, I was, I was set up to, to catch them coming out of uh, bedding to feeding and trying to have, have them catch my drag rag on the way. And he actually came from the opposite direction. Hmm. What about your, they don't are... always play, <laughs> excuse me. They, they don't always play the, play the game the way we think they should. Yeah. Got to take advantage of whatever they give you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Dan, what were you about? What are you thinking over there? You know, you've been, not only do you raise deer and you've been, you know, raising them for 30 years, but you've been uh, a hunter for almost, you know, pretty much your entire life. Translating that to what the average guy does what are some of the biggest mistakes you feel hunters make in a year when either going after, you know, a, a group of deer or going after a specific mature buck? I think scent control is, is huge. Most people don't, you know, I, I have guys that wear scent lock suits that, that don't wear a hood. Well, don't bother, you know, because your, your ears, your hair, your breath, you know, if, if you're not containing it with carbon, don't don't bother wearing the suit. It doesn't matter. Uh, using the wind, I think, is is probably you know. And I I do all the scent preparation. I, I do everything with with scent lock and and use it. Try to use it correctly. Uh, with that, I still use the wind every time I hunt. And you know, I talk to guys. It's like, well, we got 12 stands. And there's 12 of us, so we all go to one of the stands every day. You know, well, you know, if the wind isn't right, don't hunt it. You know, take the day off, whatever it takes, but but don't go in and screw it up. Deer pattern us way, way better than we pattern them. You know, if you go in and the, and the mosquitoes are biting you and you're, you're swatting mosquitoes and and sweating and, and doing all those things, just, you know, don't go. Go fishing. Don't pressure them. Uh, I... Deer react to pressure more than than I think anybody realizes. I try to scout from from you know three quarters of a mile away. I don't go in and bust them. I I I don't know. I just there's there's a whole bunch of things that I used to do that I don't do the same anymore. What are some of the other things? What are some of the other things that you've how you've evolved? Well, just like I said, if the wind isn't right, don't go there. Uh, save the save the the location. Uh, the first time in the stand is always the very best. And I have over the years used a climber a lot, and I, I'll go out and just have spots where I can go, and and not necessarily you know anything set up there. But if the wind's right and I've been seeing some action and things are working. Sometimes if you just move, you know, 30 yards from where you were and go up in the stand, you know, sometimes that's all it takes to to throw them off and, and put you in the right place. 
Yeah, it's the little things, right? That That's one of the biggest things I think Dan and I have learned over the years is like just the importance of every tiny little thing you can move in your favor. Those things add up, right? Oh, absolutely, and and that's something that I've always I've always try to try to tell my customers, and and even when I work on their bows, I, I I tell them that the little details kill big deer. You know, having having everything set where it's where it's you know where your peep sight isn't going to move or it can't come loose or uh, those like I say little thing little details kill big deer. Yeah, are there any other things that you do? different than most other hunters is there anything else really unique that you apply when it comes to deer hunting that you don't, that you think is a little bit different than the average guy or girl i probably the biggest thing i do different than than ever than 90 percent of the people is i have set my life up around deer and deer hunting and i i i, I will probably spend 40 to 50 per, 40 to 50 times uh what the average hunter does sitting in a tree stand <laughs> a lot of quality time in a tree huh yeah i had a young man come to my shop one day and told me he was he was really really upset because he almost fell asleep in a tree stand and <laughs> i said how old are you and he, uh, he was he was 19 years old and i said I said, hell, I've had that many years of sleep in a tree. <laughs> I said, I've, I've slept in a tree stand longer than you've been alive. But, but no, I, you know, it, you you got to spend the time. You know, it 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 doesn't just happen. You got to be there. Uh, but but on the other hand, if if it's not right, and the wind isn't right, and the conditions aren't favorable, don't go in and booger it up. When, you know, when I tell you how much time I spent in the stand, it's you also got to understand that there's there's a whole bunch of different stands and a whole bunch of different places where I'm going, and I'm not going in and boogering one up all the time. Yeah. Is there anything else you do other than careful scent control and just not going in to hunt too often to reduce deer the pressure the pressure you're putting on your deer? Is there anything else about your strategy or your access routes or anything else that you focus on to make sure you keep yeah. that pressure low yeah i very much try to slide in and slide out uh I, i've got some buddies that have hunted with me for years that that i finally got them convinced that they they needed when they come here to hunt with me they needed to see every inch of that timber it's like guys you don't you know you don't need to do that all you want to do is slide into that stand it's already there slide in slide out you know, go around the areas where you know there's going to be deer. You know, if if you got a a field where they're where they're feeding, uh, go around it. You know, and and slide into the stand. Don't don't booger it. Just just keep the pressure to a, to an absolute minimum. Uh, we try you know in the off season not not to booger things up uh, and and give the deer a lot of pressure. Uh, try to give them plenty of feed and cover. And just like I said earlier about, you know, hinge cutting that, that, uh, bedding area. Uh, I've done a lot of that. I've cut trails from, from bedding area to bedding area. So I've got good travel corridors and, and with every bit of that, I, every time I'm doing that, I'm figuring out where I'm going to have a stand location that I can slide in and slide out without being caught. Hmm. 
Speaking of the hinge cutting, uh, are you doing any other habitat work? Do you plant food plots or any other bedding improvements or anything like that? Yeah, all the above. Yeah. What What have you found to be some of the, the most successful improvements you've made? You know, I'm interested in like a specific food plot, how you plant it, um, or like a specific instance of a bedding cover improvement. Um, any unique example you could share with us that was really effective? Yeah, you know, with food plots, I I found that if we got farmers that farm our ground, and that's what they do for a living, they're really really good at it. Uh, we all want to do little food plots here and there and and a lot of them never make it to maturity because you know you're going in and putting putting a variety of something in there that that the deer really like and they hammer it and it's gone before the season ever gets there uh or it never makes maturity uh what i like to do with food plots is is i will have the farmer whatever he's planting in my field I'll have him plant the same thing, same variety in my food plot. And for the whole season, they've got, you know, let's, let's say there's, you know, I've got, let's say I've got a two acre food plot and there's, there's 60 acres that the farmer's got. Well, I want it to be the same thing. So when the deer are in there, they've got 62 acres of beans. Well, when the farmer takes his out, I still have beans because they didn't go in and just devour mine because it was the only beans there. So I, I feel like that's really important to you know, have food when you're done. And when he takes his out, then you're the only game in town. True. That's a nice position to be in too. When you, like you said, when you're the only game in town, you all of a sudden can pull in a whole lot more deer and, and really focus that deer travel. I imagine too, with that being the case, do you specifically, plan some of your hunts or some of your hunting strategy around when you know the crops are going to come out? Like, do you stay out of certain areas because you know that this spot's going to be a lot better once the rest of the crops come out? I don't know that I necessarily stay out of them, but, but you can, you can sure see the difference if, you know, if, if you got standing corn and, you know, there's say you got 300 acres of standing corn all the way around you, whether it's yours or the neighbor's, you know, it's real hard to find deer when they walk out in the middle of that cornfield and disappear. So, yeah, that, groceries have a, a lot to do with with my hunting strategy. I mean, you got you got to know where they're going to feed, where they're going to bed, uh, and and what groceries are there and what you know what they're looking for. You know, early in the fall, they're they're probably not going to be on the cereal crops. They're going to be out on green, uh, and and we always plant clover and. And, you know, we've got a variety of things and, and knowing when and when to hunt them is, is probably very crucial. So what does your, what's the timeline look like then? Sounds like you focus on green early, clover early, and then how does that shift throughout the rest of the season? Uh, once it frosts and, and, and uh, if it gets you know, snow covered, unless, unless the clover is really tall. They're, they're probably not going to hit it that hard. And, and, you know, when it gets cold, then they go, they go to the corn and beans. Uh, just, and, and I, and I know there's a, you know, a, a ton of different uh, food plots and providers out there that, that they all have a, you know, their particular thing and the brassicas and all of that. Uh, and you, you know, the other thing is you, you can sit back and scout it and kind of, kind of watch and know what they're doing when. Yeah. Speaking of scouting, 
and it sounds like you do a lot of long distance scouting. I think you mentioned earlier that you don't run a lot of trail cameras. Why is that? Yeah, because I'm old. (laughs) 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 You know what? My son is getting me, you know, I guess in the 21st century, and he's he's got me kind of excited about these trail cameras, and we we had more fun with them this year than than I have, have ever had in the past. Uh, I don't know. I there I, I it's a double edged sword. It's it's really neat to see all the deer. I I have watched so many guys booger an area up because they put a camera right in the middle of where they're going to hunt, and then they go in there three times a week to to look at their their to group you know, pull their cards and look at their, their deer. And by the time season gets there, they've had so much pressure, they leave. Mm-hmm. And, and I know one little guy that I, 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 I know he did that. He couldn't understand where the deer went, but he came in twice a week to show me his pictures. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. I, that part, I don't, that part of it, I don't like, but you know, as conservative as I am about going in and busting them and bothering them, you know, Trail, trail cameras are really neat and but there, but there's something about the spontaneity of, of like oh look at that buck i've never seen where he come from this is great you know <laughs> as opposed to oh yeah there's wilbur you know here he comes again <laughs> that's true <laughs> we, we we recently have been just talking about that how there, there's something cool about seeing a unique buck or specific buck over and over but then there's also something cool about that surprise and the mystery of a new deer showing up and you kind of you kind of oh, get sure. some with one and you lose some with the other, but um, I guess it's all pretty cool in one way or another. Absolutely. Hey Sam, it's getting to that time of year where deer are in the process of shedding their antlers. Is there, you know, again observing your deer herd? Is there a time that a majority of your deer shed, or is there? do certain deer shed at the same exact time every year? Yes. <laughs> Got all of the above. Uh, I know certain deer will, will shed pretty much at the same time, but, but there again, you know, the amount of stress the animal has during the winter makes a big difference too for a lot of the deer. This year they seem to be holding on to the antlers longer because you know we just we just had such a mild winter that that they you know they haven't had the stress and what what really happens is the testosterone level in that animal drops and that's you know just like when they when they come out of velvet it's the same thing for dropping the antlers so when when they come out you know when they drop the antler there again they're impotent their testosterone level is way low and that's what causes that antler to separate and fall off what percentage of the bucks are still holding by you uh you know reports from from the guys around they're seeing bachelor groups and and maybe 20% still have antlers I had one the other day, a couple just a couple days ago, said that that uh, probably might have been seventy five percent of the deer in that particular group had had antlers. Um, my antlered bucks that I have just in one lot together. There's nine bucks, and two of them are still carrying, and they're both both little bitty guys. 
So, wow. you know, they haven't any, they haven't any stress this winter. Yeah. It's interesting how that how it seems to vary so much across region to region and even local areas too. It seems like in some parts of the country I'm hearing people, you know, me and Dan were just talking a little while ago about a lot of bucks still holding. And then you hear about these other instances where there lots of them have already dropped or dropping right now and it's one of those mysteries that uh is pretty is pretty interesting how it all kind of works. Yeah. But it it, it is you know, pretty much related to, to stress levels. If if we'd have had a, a tougher winter, I'm sure that we'd have more deer, or we and they ought to be about done by now dropping. Yeah. So Sam, looking back over the course of your your years of hunting, um, you know we've talked about the fact that you've killed three 200 inch bucks. I'm sure you've killed a lot of other great deer. Um, is there any one, whether it be one of the ones we've already talked about or any other, is there any deer that you've hunted and killed? that you can kind of pick out as the most meaningful or the most memorable? And could you tell us why that, why that is? You know, I can probably tell you more about the ones that have beat me for, for being in my memory and burned in. I've, I've got deer, nice deer that I killed that. Yeah. It, it was a great memory. It was a great hunt, but probably the most memorable deer that I've encountered are the ones that have kicked my butt. Yeah, tell us <laughs> about I'll, that. I'll, ne- I'll, I'll never forget them. Uh, uh, the one I told you, I, I pulled the drag rag and <clears throat> had him had him coming in. I mean, just I, he was like coming in like a song. And I made a ninety degree corner, and he went out across the CRP field. He, he missed the trail, and. Yeah, you know, I will never forget that deer as long as I live. I had another one that was, I needed, I needed two steps, and and I this this buck was was if he was an inch he was he was a mid one eighties, and it was a huge ten pointer. He was gorgeous, and I needed two more steps, and he stood downwind of me, and and like I told you, I I do a lot of things for my scent control, but he was downwind of me for for thirty five minutes. And he froze up and would not come in. And, and all of a sudden, the, you know, must have got just the right amount of wind. Stuck his nose in the air, and I saw two little, you know, sniff, sniff. And and he got rigid, and he just he just kind of melted away backwards. I, I I rattled that deer in. I watched him come in for an hour and a half. And I'll never forget. I went back to the truck. I took my hunting clothes off, put them in my tote put my boots in a tote, slammed them in the back of the truck. And I was, I was so upset and I, <laughs> and I got in the truck to drive away. And I, now this is really stupid. And I sat there for a minute and I looked up and I went, thank you, Lord. That was a great experience. I'll be back to get him tomorrow. And I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> Gorgeous deer. Wow. Now you've had one hell of a, a hunting career, right? I mean, you've had encounters with and, and have killed deer that a majority of the listeners will never see in their entire life. And knowing you, I would say, and then this is just an assumption that if you never, if you never shot another deer again, you would, you would be happy. How much attention now is on your children and grandchildren? Oh, your kids and your grandkids are the best part of your life. Uh, yeah, don't get 
you're wrong about that one, that one thing. Is, <laughs> I want deer <laughs> and big ones. Uh, I have a. I have my oldest grandson is is an absolute killing machine. This kid is. First of all, he is so smart. He's he's way smarter than his grandpa, but <laughs> he is. I mean, he. He is a sponge. Anything you tell that kid, he he he, you know he 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 digests it. He he goes through it and he understands it. And he and he he is one of the greatest hunters I've ever met. Uh, the kid is just incredible, and and he he's got he, he he absolutely has ice water in his veins. He's he is a killing machine. Uh, just really and and eyesight of an eagle i mean it's just he really is an amazing hunter and it's really fun to watch that and yeah and and all the kids aren't gonna hunt some of them you know some of them don't have that interest some do but but he's got it and he's and he's got the the killer instinct for sure uh hunting with my son is is uh yeah i burned him out at a very young age when he was 12 it was cold miserable and nasty and he wanted to go home and I'm telling him, we're deer hunters. We don't go home. Well, he went home that night. And he says, I'll never hunt with you again. And he <clears throat> he did that for a lot of years. And here in the you know the last you know half a dozen years, we've been hunting together. And and this kid, you know, we we got Sammy and white-tailed deer the same same spring. So he'll be 30 years old this spring. He grew up with deer, taking care of them. And, and and he understands them. It's, it's really a pleasure to watch him hunt because he he knows it. He understands it. He 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 can feel it. You can watch him, and it's it's just you know I I really get pleasure watching him enjoy what what I one of the things that I enjoy most in my life. It's it's it is a big deal. You're right. Yeah, that must be pretty awesome. So I've got I've got one final question for you, Sam. Um, Given what you do for a living and where you live and kind of what you've been involved in, I got to imagine you've met a lot of really, really good hunters. And I'm curious if, if there is any common trait or quality that you've seen in these very best of the best hunters that you've gotten to know, what would that common trait be? I had a guy, actually one of the, one of the better hunters I've ever met, uh, he he told me once, and it was and it was a true compliment from him. But he he asked me. He looked me right in the eye, and he asked me. He says, "Do you know what's different between you and I, and a lot of other hunters?" And I says, "Well, I'm shorter than most of them." <laughs> <laughs> he says, "No, no, not that." He says, "He says the 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 difference." And and, and I, I'm not I don't want to brag on myself in this way, but. The difference in him, let's say, that anyway, we're sitting there talking about it, and, and he says, do you know what the difference is? And I said, Denny, I got no idea. He goes, we finished the deal. He says, lots and lots of folks are going to have opportunities. He says, you have to finish. And I, I think that's probably probably true. Uh, there's lots of opportunity out there, but if, if you if you don't, follow completely through and that's one thing i was telling telling you about my grandson he finishes i mean every time he's he's he yeah he's he's clear through the whole thing 
So yeah, you, you you can do all your homework and do everything you need to do, but you you got to finish. How do you become a better finisher? I think that's experience. I think that's you know spending the time and being there and and knowing it and understanding it and 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 you know knowing what might happen next or just just by a twitch of a tail. Uh, you know, all of the things. Just just you know, I think you have to love it. Yeah, you have to be part of it and eat it and breathe it. And, you know, just like we are, all of us, you know, we, we eat it, breathe it, sleep it. Uh, or as Dan said, he was obsessed by it. You know, that that's all part of it. Yeah, very true. Very true. The good news uh, when it comes to that, Dan, is that you and me, we've we've got hopefully plenty of time to, to get better, right? <laughs> that's right. Amen. So, uh, Dan, do you have any final question or thought for Sam? No, just uh, I tell you what. Every time I come into the shop, because I I I'm from Mount Pleasant, and uh, I went to high school with one of his daughters, and uh, every time I go into the shop, this is a plug for Sam and his business. But one of the one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet, and on top of that, he knows what he's talking about for whitetail. So if you get the opportunity to you know, meet Sam Kalora and shake his hand, I say do it. Well, hopefully Thank I'll be you, down there. Hopefully I'll be down there soon to do just that. Uh, seems like there's uh seems like you are absolutely right. So Sam, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and, and sharing all this insight you, with us. You bet. This has been fun. Yeah, we enjoyed it. And, and good luck this year. Hopefully you can kill another giant. <laughs> I'll be trying. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. And there you go. Episode number 141 is a wrap. Real quickly, though, I do want to thank our partners who have made this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Redneck Blinds, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. And I've, I've actually got to meet a number of you at some recent events. And i got to tell you, the Wired Down audience, you guys are pretty legit. So thank you. Good luck out there scouting and shed hunting, and stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.